We are in Zephaniah. It is this, uh, this, when I first read Zephaniah 3 and we get to the end bits, did you hear some of those end bits? I, I just could not understand why this was not everyone's favourite chapter in their Bible. So I'm really excited to be in this. Um, and the question that I think we need to hear ringing in our ears as we get into it is, what is it like to be near God? What is it like to be with God, in the presence of God? And Zephaniah helps us to know. Because the other question, the other way that you could ask, what's it like to be near God? If you're, particularly if you're a Christian, think about this. This is the same, it's actually the same question as, what is it like when you pray? What does it feel like? What's your experience when you pray? Because isn't that the same question as, what is it like to be near God? All right, we're going to get into Zephaniah 3. We're back with the royal insider and his tell-all reveal of the royal family. No, not the House of Windsor. In Jerusalem in the 7th century BC. And he started out, if you remember, putting the spotlight on his household. Then he looked out across the whole country. And then eventually all around the ancient Near Eastern world. And the message was, Yahweh God will not tolerate your evil any longer. The whole world will face Yahweh's reckoning. But now he's come back full circle to Jerusalem again. And this time he addresses her in very personal terms. And he does not hold back in making public what had long been true, but as in a tell-all exclusive, had previously been kept secret. But now it comes out. What is Jerusalem really like? Well, here we have it. She is rebellious. She doesn't listen. If someone offers a critique, she's always got an answer. Oh, no, no, no. That's why that was okay. That's why what I did was fine. I thought it all through. Even if God's the one calling them on it, she won't trust him. She'll go to church, but when the decision is between trusting God and going with what she already thinks, oh, well, Jerusalem knows what's best. She goes with what she already knows. So in the end, because of that, she will not draw near to her God. She'll do church things, she'll offer sacrifices, but she doesn't deeply, intimately, obediently commune with her God. And the men who rule her, goodness, they're predators. Verse 3, you see that there? They are roaring lions, evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. These are the people who will not stop taking until there is some, nothing left to take. In fact, actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. These descriptions through here, everyone is the opposite of what they're supposed to be. Her prophets, so we're down in verse 4, her prophets whose job it is to speak the truth, they're treacherous. They speak lies. The priests, people who care for holy things, profane the holy things. And they end up living in ways that work against the very law that they are supposed to promote. Everything is wrong in this place with these people. But Yahweh still lives there. Verse 5. God still lives there. He lives with this disobedient people and has for a long time. It's been, we saw the, the, the timeline. It's been four generations of rebellion at least. Even since just this small part of the saga, four generations started with King Hezekiah. Multiple lifetimes. How are you with sitting when there's something you want to correct patiently? This is four lifetimes of patience. Sitting with the sin. God's watching darkness. God living alongside those who insult his intelligence, his holiness, his goodness, his morality, and his provision for them. And he doesn't lose his rag. To these people, he's faithful. 
it continues the world spinning. The sun rises, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, this is the thing. God is perfectly pure, make no mistake, but his love and faithfulness and his commitment to humanity results in, in his ability to just, to just be with a surprising closeness for a surprising period of time to people, even though they're evil. See, like a good patient teacher, he's there, but like a good patient teacher, he makes Israel, Israel very aware of the limits and the consequences. And in verse 6, he says, be careful. You don't want to face the discipline. I've done discipline before. Have a look at verse 6 with me. I've done discipline before. I've cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. This isn't my first rodeo, says God. And then verse 7, if you respect that, hey, look, there is a way out. You could, there's, there, there is sensible options here for you. Just return to me. I promise I can take a sorry well. I can deal with a sorry. But the first half of verse 7, I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. He's just hoping for it. Then your dwelling would not be cut off, nor my punishments come upon you. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. And so that's it. God says, you're toast. Hammer will drop. It's the end. Sure, some of the humble in the land may survive. The, the, the promise of shelter at the end of chapter 2 is very, very real. And yes, there is no requirement that you need to meet in order to get into that shelter, except for humble yourself before the Lord and ask for it. A simple, genuine sorry. But those in Jerusalem, those ones who do say sorry, they, they, they're going to be uh, the exception, not the rule. They're going to be a remnant, uh, just a, a, a shining little light, but amongst the background of destruction. For the day I will stand up to testify, I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. There is nowhere to hide except, except under the hand of Yahweh. Now, let your mind absorb that relational reality. For Jerusalem, this is the foreshadowing of an invasion, a physical army coming to destroy them. And it did so twice, in fact, it, they conquered Jerusalem. Second time, leaving the place completely desolate. This is, this is verifiable history. We, 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 have a, we have a clay copy of the rations list for Jehoiachin, the king of Israel who they took off with them when they conquered Babylon. Uh, we have the, the clay roll for, um, for the Edict of Cyrus when Cyrus eventually, 70 years later, said, hey, you can go back to the land. God's words came true objectively, historically here. But the language here somehow points us forward to some other reality as well. Because God will bring a final end to this whole age. He will do this again. And on that day, the consequences will be the full universal that you see here in Zephaniah, the whole world. There is no element of this world that will escape God's audit. And again, on that day, the only place to hide will be under the hand of Yahweh. We need to trust that this is true when God says it we, and, and not to minimize that, to live in the light of that. And so, verse 9 starts with a then or, or a at that time. 
And it takes us into the heart of this day, this day of the Lord, when all this judgment will take place. But one of the strange things is, is that when he goes, wants to go into it, Zephaniah highlights not what's going to happen everywhere, but, well, it's almost as if the rest of the book is where Zephaniah opens up God's hands and shows you what happens inside the shelter that's there. What's it like to be there? Close with him. What is God going to do for and in the ones who are sheltered in his hand? What will it look like to be with God? Well, verse 10 and 11. For starters, when he opens up his hands, you're going to see lots of different skin colors. It's going to be pretty interesting. Verses 9 and 10. Then I'll purify the lips of the peoples, and all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Cush. That's like you've got Egypt, and then you've got beyond Egypt, which no one ever goes to, and then you've got beyond, beyond Egypt, right? This is beyond the black stump. People are going to come from everywhere. My worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. It won't just be Jews. And from all these different skin colours, you'll hear a speech that's different from any that you've ever heard before. Not, not a new language. It won't be the grammar and, the, and the, all of these. It, there'll be you know, horrible French paradigms and stuff like that. No, it's not going to be the, that. It's, it's actually going to be that the content will be unprecedented. Because whether it's Kushite, Korean, Persian, English, Mandarin, French, it will be spoken purely. You've never heard speech like this, no matter what languages you know. It'll be used to call out to God and honour him rightly. See, the difference will be Baal will go hungry on that day. Molech will have no child, children sacrificed to him. You'll never hear anyone worship money again in the way that they speak. You'll never he- you'll ne- no more children will be sacrificed on the altar of Korea. You won't hear about that happening. The people then there will know that God is sufficient for them. See, there's no longer people worshipping other gods. Their speech will be pure and they will all call on the name of Yahweh. He is what will make them happy and blessed and complete. Whether they have the things that they would kind of like to build for their life in Hobart or whether they're overseas in the back of beyond and have nothing. He will make them happy, blessed and complete and they will speak like it as we've already heard someone do tonight. Now, let me read to you this one little sentence, this in verse 11. I think this has got to be the most amazing sentence in Scripture, possibly. At least it's up there, right? It's not a 316, but it's still good. Um, Verse 11, let me read it to you. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs that you have done to me. Do you see what he is doing there? Do you have anything of which you're ashamed? Don't put your hand up. There'll be a lot of them. There's an easy, there's an easy test for this one, by the way, to, to see if you've got anything that you'd be ashamed for. If God was going to um, put on a movie in the cinemas, um, I just went to the, the cinemas on Collins Street today, and um, uh, uh, if there was a you know, poster up, Life of Pete, you know, on the wall, would you buy your friend's tickets to come see your life on a big screen? Every thought... Every deed. Would you get your mum and dad front row seats? <laughs> your kids? Uh, we have all done things that we're ashamed of, right? You've done things and thought things in your life that would shock and should shock people. And yet, on that day, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, says the Lord. 
Do, do you see what he's doing in both instances there? He's not pretending you've done nothing wrong. All the wrongs you have done to me is part of the sentence. There is no pretense that you are better than you are. They're there. And yet on the last day, if you humble yourself before God, he is not going to use those things to humiliate you. That is not on his agenda. He could. You might even say he should. And yet he won't. Look what she did. Well, I guess I'm a pretty awesome God for, you know, for healing her. Look at everyone. Look at how bad that person was. And I'm, I'm just so generous. That I just, that's not, that is not how our God is. He won't be like that, not to the ones sheltering in his hands. Do you see when, what he does instead? Uh, he will sing about you. Instead of, a, instead of a movie of your transgressions before people, there is going to be a musical dedicated to you in verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. The time for that's past. He will rejoice over you with singing. Not only will he not shame you, he'll make you world famous as his sons and daughters that he is proud of being his sons and daughters. He won't be embarrassed by you. He won't be ashamed of you. He'll take delight in being associated with you. So what happens when God judges? We're just going to pick up three little movements in the last couple of verses. These three movements are arrogance becomes humility. Lies give way to truth and violence turns to peace. You see it there. Arrogance becomes humility. Verse 12. Verse, well, we'll really second half of verse 11 and then verse 12. I'll remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. That's what it'll be like when God opens his hands and shows you who's sheltered there. That's who they'll be. Now, sometimes at soul, I think, I point at myself for this as well, we can be arrogant. Yeah, it's rarely open boastfulness. I mean, we're too Australian for that. <laughs> no, you're not supposed to do that. But when I speak as if what I'm saying is, of course, the truth, and no one else would ever think differently, or they shouldn't, or they're an idiot, if that's the tone in my voice, well, then I'm being arrogant. It's a subtle thing, but, but we, know when someone, we, know, we know it when someone speaks as if they've got all the answers. You can feel it. You can sense it. The way they speak, the way they're holding themselves, it shows. And it kills conversation when we act like that, as if anyone who disagreed with us is an idiot. Because think about it, even in our conversations with each other who agree with that, someone who doesn't agree with that thing might be listening in as well at the same time, right? And they might feel it. And it kills conversations. It makes it harder for the other person to share their point of view, which means you'll never learn anything from them either because they're not going to share with you how they think. And it actually means they'll never learn anything from you either if you do happen to be right and because they're, they're not going to be willing to engage with you because they know, oh, I keep quiet because that's what I'm supposed to think or otherwise I'm an idiot. See, we need to speak the truth, but also we need to speak with humility. That's what we'll be like in heaven so that more truth can be brought to the conversation by others and we can learn from each other. See, there won't be any arrogant people in God's heaven. And no one will ever make any of his people afraid ever again. Lies to truth. Second movement, lies to truth. Um, another group that will actually experience change is people who are habitually telling lies. Uh, verse 9 says, I'll purify the lips of these people. So they'll speak purely. Verse 13 
they will speak no lies. And one of the interesting, nor will any deceit be found in their mouths. And one of the interesting things is that that leads to them eating and lying down and not being made afraid. Are you practicing with your speech for heaven? Now, remember that the pride and arrogance that comes when we want people to see us and think of us, think of us better than we are, which goes along with lies, doesn't it? Massaging the truth, trying to project a certain image of ourselves instead of being just brutally honest about what's really true about us. Well, remember that shame that we've scared. If I just tell the absolute, just real truth, if I was just really honest, oh, I'd be so ashamed. So Jesus has taken that away. The Lord will not put you to shame on the last day. And you won't be put to shame amongst God's people. Let's not speak lies to each other. And the third shift here, violence gives way to peace. Violence will disappear. Verse 13b, they will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. When, God's bring, when God brings his shelter, when he opens up, his, opens up his hand to show who is there on the last day, there will be no fear amongst those people. You won't have a reason to be scared. For those of you who've got anxiety, there'll be nothing to produce that and the ability to feel that will be gone. They will, they will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, what do you think it's going to be like when you meet God on the last day? And what do you feel like it's like when you go to God in prayer? When you go to God and, and, and you've got to be real with him and tell him actually you've done some shameful stuff. Do you find it hard to go? I do. When you go to God, those he humbles, he does not humiliate. Let's go to him. Go to him. Do you pray because you think God can? And I mean, think about when we go to God, this is sort of the other half of what happens when we go to God, when we pray. Um, in the first half of the book, it was people who didn't think God would ever do anything. God is just this impotent sort of, you know, uh, relief teacher sitting at the back and freaking out while the class goes into mayhem. Do you pray because you think God can and will powerfully act on your behalf? Or do you pray because you're kind of supposed to? What do you expect when you go to God? Expect him, as Zephaniah says, that those he humbles, he will not humiliate, but also expect that he is a powerful God who can and who will act for the best interests of his people. Go to him. Go to him. And the last one is, what would you have to give up trusting in in order to experience that? You see, whenever we don't go to God, it's because we're going to something else. Don't mistake that. We're worshippers as people. We, we don't just do nothing. We find ways to cope with life. And if I'm not going to God to deal with these things that I'm facing, then I'm going to something else. To myself, perhaps, and my genius little tricks of dealing with life. Or maybe I'm going to my sense that oh, I've got this wonderful wife and family and that makes me a, a, a person. I'll, just, I'll just, just absorb myself in that. Or maybe my career makes me good. Or maybe money is going to make me secure and safe. Maybe I do so much great ministry that I can feel proud of my ministry. When we're not going to God, we're going to something else. What do you, would you have to give up trusting in to go to God and experience his singing over you? As we give up those things, we will pray more. 
Just come to verse 19 and 20 with me, the last two verses of Zephaniah. At that time, what's he going to do? I'll deal with all who oppressed you. I'll rescue the lame and I'll gather those who have been scattered. I'll give them praise and honour where? Specifically in every land where they were put to shame. God will care for his people who've been through hard times. He's the one we go to. Verse 20. At that time I'll gather you and at that time I'll bring you home. I'll give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes says the Lord. Now this was true for Israel at a small level. After 70 years, God did bring back a remnant, but they weren't special, they weren't amazing. And they still were sinful. And then all of their shame, all of the shame of them having been destroyed and exiled and kicked out of their land for all of the sins that they had done, God took away as God came to this earth. Jesus, God the Son, took on humanity and he got hung up on a cross. He, he, was, he was put up on a movie screen, naked and ashamed for all of us. People paying him out, laughing at him so that it would never happen to you. He fulfilled the role of Israel to take all of the sin of the world on him and to take its shame so that it will be taken away. You see, that is how you know that when you go to God, that he, though he will humble you, like Job sort of kind of got humbled pretty hard when he went to God, that he will not humiliate you. How do we know that? I'm not just saying because Zephaniah says it, though Zephaniah does say it. I'm saying that because Jesus took the shame away. And he's not out for your shame. He is actually out. Can you hear the soul of this? He is out to glorify you and praise you and give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth. That's God's plan for you. So what's it like to be with God? What's it like to be a refugee in his hand? Well, we get humbled. Our speech changes. Violence turns to peace. And the ones he humbles, he doesn't humiliate. He sings over them. I'm just going to briefly pray. Heavenly Father, help us to go to you. There are things that we might have to give up going to a little bit to, to, to get ourselves back to praying to you to knowing that being with you is the place of shelter. Well, there's lots of other things that distract us. And it can be easy to pretend and think that you're a God who sits back and does nothing. But it is not true. You have judged in the past. You have proved it. And you will judge in the future. Father, help us to humbly go to you and ask, us to, ask you to shelter us in the palm of your hand. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for what we can expect that though you might humble us, you will not humiliate us. Amen.